fortune favors the bold. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that lied to you about who today's guest is going to be, the Rossafari Podcast. That's right, y'all. If y'all caught up on zoos, zoo news, zoos, see, I do the thing, but it doesn't work because it just sounds like the word zoos. Anyway, if you're all caught up on zoo news, then you know that at the end of each episode, I've started telling you who's going to be my guest on Tuesday. Cool little preview to get you excited. And if you don't know that, then that means that you're not listening to all of zoo news. So shame on you. And you should do that because it's cool and it makes me happy. So Anyway, um, and I told you that you would be hearing from a gentleman from the Tulsa Zoo today. And don't worry, that interview with Joe Barkowski is coming next Tuesday. However, this week is a very special week for the Rossafari podcast and for the San Diego Zoo. Because they are opening a brand new space at the San Diego Zoo. And uh, I have an interview from there that's, that's going to touch upon this. A few years ago, the San Diego Zoo closed down their old children's zoo exhibit and have now replaced it with Wildlife Explorers Base Camp, which is still in the model of a children's zoo, except that it's definitely not just for kids. Adults, you're going to love this place. And uh, by changing the name, there's also the hope that, you know, the teenagers who think they're too cool for school and don't want to go to the kids zoo will go and check it out. Uh, it's, it's an awesome place. It's an awesome concept. And I cannot wait to have you learn more about it. But too bad. We're going to have to wait. Because first, I need to remind you that you should be following along on social media Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Rossafari, TikTok at Rossafari Pod. Want to remind you that there is merch available to purchase on the website, and we, we've gotten some purchases recently. Pretty excited about all of that. Rossafari.com. You can also listen to the podcast there and do other podcast website stuff. I refuse to ever figure out a better way to say that because I'm entertained by me stumbling through it. And uh, last but not least, if you'd like to support the pod, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. It really makes a huge difference. Um, I, I make enough now to cover the basic costs of like hosting and everything from from this podcast. But but y'all, I travel and, and do all kinds of crazy stuff to get to these zoos. And uh, that's all coming out of pocket right now, which like. I'm cool with, but if you want to help with that for as little as $3 a month, less than one iced coffee at Starbucks, then you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. All right. So for those of you playing along, you know that I have been uh, bringing you episodes from my road trip 
going all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast, where I have been gigging in California. And we will we will return to that on Tuesday, like I said, for Joe Barkowski of the Tulsa Zoo. But we're going to skip ahead to the next series, which is California Facilities. And y'all, I spoke to some amazing places. I am so in love with California, and I am so in love with so many of the facilities that that you are going to hear from. But I'm not going to lie. I don't think I've ever been more in love with a place than San Diego, and specifically the San Diego Zoo and the Safari Park, which is really amazing as well. But uh, I have always loved the San Diego Zoo from the first time that I went there. Um, but wow, having, having the zoo in my life for at the time of the interview, you're going to hear five weeks and, and really seven weeks because I went back and visited from Phoenix, even though it's a five hour drive each way. Uh, it was, it was really ridiculous. I, I can't even tell you how much of a place in my heart, the, the city of San Diego and, and specifically the zoo and the safari park have in my heart right now. It's just, it's, it's craziness. I am so sad that I will not be going back anytime soon. When I left both parks on the last day that I visited, I I left like like I was leaving a best friend behind. It 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 was hard. Um I, I got myself a new hoodie to to ease the pain and my my stuffed red panda red who travels everywhere with me also got San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance hoodie. It's really soft and I'm really excited that he has it. But enough of all of this. It's time to get to this interview, okay? Today, I am bringing you an interview with Nikki Boyd. Nikki Boyd is the Associate Curator of Behavioral Husbandry at the San Diego Zoo and is also a board member at Red Panda Network. This is the ultimate confluence of all of my things, interests, loves. Oh my gosh, this is the best. You are going to love this interview. You are going to love Nikki. I'm not going to tell you a damn thing you're going to hear in there, but it's all real good. And, um, you know, I just, I have to tell you, so Nikki is really high up at the San Diego Zoo. She is, is a mover and a shaker. And despite that fact, I spent a lot of time one-on-one with Nikki Boyd, not just doing this interview, but but doing some behind-the-scenes stuff. And you'll, you'll hear some more of, of that in and after the interview. But the craziest thing that stood out to me is, y'all know, I love a good leader. And Nikki knew every single human that we interacted with, even people she just ran into, people on the cleaning staff she spoke to by name, told me their history, introduced me to them. Every single person at that zoo that even just as we were driving by in her golf cart, guys, I got to go in golf cart rides through the zoo. It was amazing. But anyway, um, every single person that we would drive past, it seemed like she would stop and be like, oh, hey, by the way, that meeting, can you do next Tuesday? Or like, hey, how's it going? Um, How's that project going? Whatever. And she was right every time she knew all of them. That kind of leadership is so inspiring and so cool to see. And um. Yeah, I guess what I'm rambling about is that uh, get ready to be inspired, y'all, because this one is inspirational. But first, an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. 
Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. Okay, y'all. It is time. Here is my interview with Nikki Boyd of the San Diego Zoo and Red Panda Network. All right, so let's start off by you telling me who you are, where we are, and what your title here is. All right, my name is Nikki Boyd. I am the Associate Curator of Behavioral Husbandry at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Yeah, you are. And on top of that, you're also a board member at Red Panda Network. So basically, this is the dream interview. This will be our last episode of the podcast because I have peaked. And after it, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for for being here. Well, it's great to be here. And I'm super excited to to be on your podcast, too. Thank you. So, okay, let's let's talk about, I mean, you basically have all of the dream jobs at once. (laughs) Um, But how did you how did you get here? Tell me about like coming up and when did you fall in love with animals and all that good stuff? Yeah, I do always say I have the best job at the zoo because I get to work with a little bit of everything. Um, So I don't want to bore you with too much, but um, I did get interviewed uh, for the Kids Time magazine one time. And it's a picture from when I'm like four years old holding a cat that's about as big as me (laughs) up into – and I actually had red panda pictures, you know, feeding red pandas as a zookeeper in early in my career. So – I've actually worked here for 29 years at wow. San Diego Zoo. This will be my 30th year. My anniversary is you know, in September. So um, I was very lucky. I started uh, – I grew up in San Diego since I was about eight years old. I went to Moore Park College, which is the Exotic Animal Training and Management College, straight out of high school. And they were they they will have been on a few episodes ago. So I went and visited them earlier when I was was gigging up in uh, L.A. So yeah, great place. It's an amazing college. When I was in high school, my AP English teacher was like – these are the colleges you can go to. And then he read like a letter from a stu- He would read letters from students. And he's read this letter from this guy named Dustin. And he said, I get up at 6 a.m. I'm cleaning up after hoofstock and elephants and primates. And I was like, that's the college I want to go to. <laughs> so I kind of knew from an early age, I'd always had dogs and worked around horses. And um, we would, my stepdad would catch snakes. And my real dad lives in Florida. So I would catch lizards out there. And I was always outside playing with something. If I found an egg, I tried to incubate it, you know, it's just <laughs> watching baby lizards try to hatch out was like my early memories of being in Florida in the summers. So, um, just lots of animals actually missing a big part. I grew up with like 13 citizens in my house. So I had oh. six macaws, um, when I was young, my sixth grade science fair project was, um, preference fruit testing with macaws, which, <laughs> out of, which, which out of six fruits would six macaws choose? Grapes were their favorite, just for the record. I didn't win any awards or anything, but I was like, I have all these macaws at my house. Why am I not doing something? So um, that's the beautiful macaw picture on my wall here in my office. Um, So I love working with all kinds of animals. Um, 
I was lucky enough to start after Moorpark. I went to the vet tech program. Um, so I kind of learned training. And then people were like, oh, like my dog has a lump on its back. What's wrong with it? And I was like, I don't know. I can train your dog. But I, I've had like one semester of pre-vet, you know, and anatomy and physiology. So going to the vet tech program really kind of gave me some balance between animal behavior and, you know, training them for medical procedures. So I learned how to put in IVs and draw blood and do dentals and put in animals under anesthesia and understand that. But um, I really missed the relationship I had with the animals. So I kind of knew it was great to have the vet tech background, but I knew that animal training would give me that long-term relationship with an animal because in a vet clinic, there's a lot of turnover. There's a, you know, a lot of burnout, you know, that where, where you're as a vet tech, you are, you know, not getting paid great wages. Um, you work with animals that have been hit by a car or people just say, oh, just euthanize my animal. And it's really stressful for people. So there's a lot of compassion fatigue there. And so I graduated the vet tech program. I got hired at the zoo two weeks later as a summer job. And I've been here ever since. Um, I was part-time in the beginning in the children's zoo and I worked my butt off. I did everything you know, I always give people um, tips. It's like, you, you know, you clean the toilets if you have to. You do whatever. You know, you rake, you hose, you you, know, you stay busy. I always teach. I have three kids. I teach my kids the same work ethic. Um, they don't always do it, but that's my <laughs> trying. And so uh, at the end of the summer, they found me full-time work. So um, let me pause you there yeah. for a second because that's, that's awesome to hear. That's amazing. But, um, you know, the word on the street is that you can't just start with a zoo or with a job at the San Diego Zoo. So do you think it was the Edom experience that got you in there? Or or what do you think it was that meant that you got to have your first job at the San Diego Zoo with like capital yeah, V? <laughs> right. So the good thing about Edom, which is Exotic Animal Training Management, I'm sure people who have heard that know, um, Edom is a terrible acronym. It for is the it. worst. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we got to do internships. So because my family was in San Diego, I did my internship at SeaWorld. I did my internship at the San Diego Zoo. And as the vet tech, I did my internship at the Safari Park. <laughs> so um, I also was volunteering at the zoo um, towards the end. And I love this saying from one of the other curators here, fortune favors the bold. So I found people who were volunteering at the zoo and I'm like, oh my God, I want to work there. How do I volunteer when I was a vet tech at an exotic animal hospital here in San Diego? And they said, oh, I, you know, sorry, there's no more openings. And then a week later she goes, hey, I got a job. Do you want my volunteer position? And I was like, yes. So if I hadn't asked her about wanting to volunteer, probably wouldn't have been the first one she thought of when she had, knew it was an opening. So my last semester at the vet tech program, I got an ID card because I was volunteering at the primate research pad in the back. And I would come in and wave to people I'd done the internship with and was like, I'm here. Kind of like, you know, you and I meeting, right? Yep. So here at Red Pandas. <laughs> so it's um, it's definitely uh, something, if you really want something, you know, you work hard at it. And I was very lucky um, that I had exotic animal experience, but I also had some references because I'd done internships here. So that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. I mean, that makes sense. And you put in a lot of time and effort to get in there. So yeah, yeah. that's very cool. That's very I remember... Like wanting it so bad I could taste it. Like I was like, I, I grew up coming to San Diego Zoo when I was little. I have pictures, you know, when I was like eight years old with King Tut. We had a Moluccan cockatoo at the front. And, <laughs> you know, of course, we had parrots back then. So I was like feeding them my popsicle stick and getting yelled at by the bus drivers because <laughs> you're not supposed to feed the animals. But, you know, my mom was like, it's just a wooden popsicle stick. But we understand, like, if everybody walked by and did that, it would be a problem. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I really wanted to work here bad. So as you can see, I've kind of tried to put in the legwork and it is very rare that you're going to get a job two weeks out of graduating college, but you can see I had kind of tried to build up to that point. Yeah. That's, that's so awesome to hear. Very cool. And then what was your, your first, you know, position here? So I was a children's zoo exhibit attendant. Um, in, so I worked in the petting zoo, um, but because I had the vet tech program, they started tra- training me in the nursery very quickly. And then um, the same girl who gave me her volunteer position, she got hurt at the Wegaforth Bowl back when it was a sea lion show. And so they were like, hey, and I had done my internship there. And they said, can Nikki come down here and, and you know, because I was only part time. So the other days that she's not working, can she help us at Wegaforth Bowl because we're shorthanded? And so that kind of helped save some of my hours. So after summer ended, they still had a few hours to give me. And I just kept applying for full-time jobs. And they were like, you don't want to work. I was like applying for hoofstock and what we call the back 40. And they were like, you don't want to work back there. And I was like, yes, I do. I want full-time at San Diego Zoo. I don't care. I'll push wheelbarrows up a hill full of hoofstock poop. I don't care. <laughs> but um, my boss at the time, uh, he found me a full-time position in the children's zoo. So then I was officially a full-time children's zoo keeper. Wow. And that's like extra special right now because the children's zoo has been closed for a while but is about to reopen rebranded and all that good stuff so um since we're talking about children's zoo why don't you tell me about that a little bit yeah so um the children's zoo will be called wildlife explorers base camp and it opens on march 11th so we're super excited to share this amazing space with the world it is um you know, if you think of base camp and, you know, Mount Everest or whatever, it's where you kind of start the climb. And so we're kind of kind of start the climb to conservation and, and, and getting the next generation of conservationists excited about animals and the environment. And so I love the branding of the base camp because um, and being an explorer, it could be any age. It doesn't mean just children. So maybe the children's zoo turned people off. Oh, I don't want to go to the children's zoo. That's for little kids. Or if you're a teenager, you're like, eh, I'm not a little kid. I don't want to go over there. Now it's like, oh, I want to go, you know, see this amazing insect house or the herb house or meet an ambassador or see any of the zones. We have a desert zone. We have wild woods with some um, temperate forest animals like Kuwati and um, we'll have squirrel monkeys over there. We have a tropical area that can rotate everything from Tamandua, your favorite, Binturong, Um Besides red pandas, right? Yes, yes. Um, so the tropical area can have some rotational animals. I was just over there today. We have an ocelot over there, a prehensile porcupine. Oh. I know. So lots of really cool species through this whole space. It's it's a little over three acres, um, but they have a lot of parallel play too. So, and honestly, I've done tours mostly for adults right now, and they're having as much fun playing on the you know the V rope running across <laughs> in the the giant uh, ancient oak tree. So um, I can't wait to share it with you guys and and make sure that um, we continue to spark that interest for conservation and and that empathy for wildlife. So what you're telling me is that after my gig in Phoenix, even though I'm supposed to drive all the way home, I'm going to have to turn around and drive back to San Diego because that is when this will be open and check this out before I go home, right? A hundred percent. Okay. Yes. All right. It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John. Mm. Okay. So actually, I don't have to do that because, um, well... Nikki decided to let me come back during my time in Phoenix and get a private preview of the new area of the San Diego Zoo that is opening 
later the week this episode drops. Um, so stay tuned at the end of the interview, and I am going to talk you through the brand new exhibit at the San Diego Zoo. It's it's really exciting, and there is a lot to share. Okay, back to the interview. And who wouldn't want to come back to San Diego? I mean, you know, average temperatures, 70 degrees. You're going to Phoenix? You're going to be like... Oh, please. Still I want to go. Sure I'm going home yeah. after all of this. This has been, I've, I've been out here for five weeks now and it has been heaven. And most of it was in LA, but I was still driving down here every day, even yeah. at these gas prices. So, you know, <laughs> a little it's crazy. A yeah. yeah. <laughs> My mom took a vacation to San Diego and was like, we are moving there. So I was born in Florida, but um, if you've ever been to Florida, you know how hot it is there. Oh, yeah. So working at a zoo in Florida was like, no, thank you. Um, I love all the people who do it. So thank you guys. <laughs> You've you know, got better uh, thermal regulation than I do, but it's just it's too hot out there. So mm-hmm. San Diego is the best place to work at a zoo, 100%. And it has the best zoo, right? The best zoo, I mean, hands down. Yeah, yeah. There are other really amazing zoos out there. there. Are, I talk about this yeah. a lot, but this place is just yeah. perfect. You're absolutely right. And I say that a little tongue in cheek, but um, of course I'm biased. But yes, there's some amazing zoos. I That's one of the things I do on every vacation. I drag my family to all the zoos. I love the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha. Yes. It's one yep. of my favorites of all time. And some of the zoos in, in Europe are phenomenal. So yes. And we all work together. That's kind of why we rebranded for the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance is because we want to be an ally with all the other zoos, with the conservation work going on out in the wild. And so, um, yes, give, got to give love to all the other zoos as well. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's what we do on the pod. So, you know, um, I am, since you brought up the, the rebrand, um, I'm, I am so amazed at how thorough of a rebranding it was. I, I go to a lot of, you know, I've been around 170 zoos and, and aquariums and stuff. Um, and a lot of times you'll see a kind of thing where it's like rebranded, but then half the signs and half the merch aren't. And when Zoo Knoxville became Zoo Knoxville instead of the Knoxville Zoo, for like a decade, there were still signs <laughs> that said like, you know, both. And I remember when I did an interview there, I literally asked, I was like, how do you want me to list y'all on the podcast? Because I'm seeing a lot of both. And it's just like, it's a slow process, which I get. Everything here is Wildlife Alliance. Yes. Everything. Can you talk at all about what goes into making something like that happen so thoroughly? Yeah. Well, I've been through two rebrands, so I can tell you it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of legwork ahead of time. We do have an amazing interpretive department um, that works really hard on the back end. Um, Amazing sign shop. Um, All of the partners and just lots of meetings and Um, Our CEO for this rebrand comes from the background of Disney and doing a lot of production work in Disney. So definitely his attention to detail made a big difference. Um, The messaging, everything was rolled out to the employees very early and often. I mean, we were kind of trying to keep the logo secret. So it was kind of like, okay, we're going to show you this, but it's, you know, we want to do this big (laughs) unveiling. So we had lots of internal meetings, um, you know, it was like right before, like, I think it was right in the beginning of the pandemic. So it was like, ah, when are we going to do this? You know? Um, but so we kind of had to pause a little bit and and get, you know, a good time when we could do it. Um, and then, uh, we were all like trained, like if you see one logo on zoo grounds, like, I mean, everything from our uniforms getting patched over or rebranded or re, re, um, embroidered, to, I mean, I would drive by and I'd say, oh, the Coke machine still has the old logo on it. And I'd call operations director and she'd make sure that, you know, that the Coke company would change out the logo. So it was a lot of extra effort. But um, we work really hard to have a one voice thought. And so um, lots of, you know, podcasts and webinars and just kind of 
letting us, um, we, 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 we had like 40 trainers. I was one of the trainers. And so we got trained on the, the whole thought process behind the rebranding and we each got trained on a PowerPoint and then we presented them to our departments and anyone who wanted to come. Thank God for Zoom. I don't know how we would have rolled yeah. all this out. Seriously. I did lots of training, and so that helped me kind of get that muscle memory. And so um, we really work hard at, you know, our language to make sure that it's appropriate for this time in, in, in the, you know, focus that are on zoos and making sure that we are inclusive. And we've actually, with the rebranding, so the explanation behind it is not very many people knew we were a conservation organization. And so um, we did a poll. I want to say it was back in, you know, 2006 or so. And I think maybe nine, 10% knew we were a conservation organization. We rebranded and five years later, we had moved the mark about five or six more percent. In the one year after rebranding to the Wildlife Alliance, we had jumped that to like 25% knew that we were a conservation organization. So it was a lot of great messaging, um, a thoughtful process behind the rollout. Um, and, you know, it's easy to get some media attention. Um, so we we worked really hard to attract, you know, international media. We have a great social media department. And so it was really trying to kind of roll this this big launch out and explain why, what, what is our change? You know, it's not just a name change. It's like a philosophy. So we focus on conservation hubs and we really aligned our internal and external partnerships with this rebrand so that it was the most impactful. And it's, it's not just words either. It's not just another pretty logo. It's like a really impactful mission and it drives everything we do now. That's really awesome. And that is really important. Um, one thing I always push for when I do talk to people, especially in like PR and stuff at zoos, is to talk about the um, conservation stuff going on, especially behind the scenes conservation work. Y'all are good at that. The Toronto Zoo is good at that. The Cincinnati Zoo is good at that. Yeah. Um, but there are there are a ton of places that I will go to to do an interview and I will have researched. And then I'll start talking to somebody and they're like, oh, did you know that we save this local rat species? And I'm like – no. And I was looking for You're that right, information. Right. I was trying to find that. <laughs> can we can we get that out there instead of just another picture of a draft? Like also do the draft. It's cool. Yeah. I get it. But yeah, I so that I think that's very cool. Um I hope that more people or more more people, more zoos will, will follow follow suit and, and get the 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 idea that that's working. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like WCS sends like so much of their budget um to conservation. So there's a lot of great zoos, you know, London Zoo does so much stuff. So it is um part of the rebranding is also making sure that you know, our constituents and people know about it. So we've changed our newsletter to be more conservation minded. Um, just everything from the bus tour here to I run the ambassador teams as well. So we have hub uh, presentations now that have all the messaging. And so we try to t align our um, collection with um, being allowing us to, to talk about the hub messaging, all of our graphics, at the, especially in base camp, like we have burrowing owls and that's one of our Southwest hubs. And so focusing on the eight conservation hubs um, has really given us some kind of laser focus, as we called it in the beginning. It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John again. Okay, so I, I wanted to explain to you what the hubs are that the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance is using for all of this messaging and all the cool stuff that you're hearing about here. Um, it's a it's a really great way to get this message across, and it really helps, like like Nikki said, like with the focus of of what they are doing for conservation. So the eight hubs are the African Forest, represented by the gorilla, 
Amazonia, represented by the jaguar, the Asian rainforest, represented by the tiger, the Australian forest, represented by platypus and koala, oceans, represented by polar bear and penguins, the Pacific Islands, represented by the alela, also known as the Hawaiian crow, the savanna, represented by elephants and rhinos, and the southwest, represented by desert tortoises and burrowing owls. Okay, back to the interview. And then our our goal, we have regular meetings on our conservation projects. And even though I'm a curator and not a researcher, I go to the meetings so that I have the information to pass to my frontline people who pass it on to the guests. And then, um, you know, our goal is that we go and align with people and we enhance capacity and help with resources as best that we can. But we have an exit strategy so that they become self-sufficient and then we can move on and help the next people who need it. So um, it's, it's great to see that, uh, we used to say, oh, we have 150 projects. And it was like, okay, well, how much impact are we having? Like, we're we just helping a little bit here and there, and then they're not really being sufficient. So we kind of pulled it back in and reeled it in and figured out what we could be the most impactful at and what was the most critical need, like, you know, polar bears. I don't know that we'll ever be able to back out of that, you know, but um, we work really closely with Polar Bears International and, um, you know, that was like, okay, this is a priority. You know, we want to work in our own backyard. So Southwest Hub's a priority. So it's really important to kind of um, really align ourselves with with our goals and our mission-driven, you know, focus. And I've, I can see that we are having a better impact and being more effective now. Awesome. I really love that. Um, very cool. So let's, okay, well, this was a huge tangent and I loved it. But so um, we, we were talking about your early career and um, tangents are my favorite in case you can't <laughs> tell yet. But um, so, you know, you, you got your job here. And, and so kind of talk me through going up from being a keeper to being this important person who gets a real office where you get to like have stuff. <laughs> have my own pictures on the wall. <laughs> um, well, I was a keeper for seven years and, um, you know, I'm a people person too. And so a lot of times in the zoo industry, if you're a people person, you just kind of gradually move into leadership roles. And, um, honestly, on a personal level, I, I love playing softball. Well, I hurt my knee. I tore my ACL Ooh. and it's, you know, this is a pretty physical job. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking about my future too. And I was like, well, I'm pretty good with people and I probably don't want to like lift bales of hay the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, I would see a lot of people, you know, broken down and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, had never really, you know, you, you, we have, we're a Teamsters union, so we make good money. We have good benefits, but you know, you can only do this job for so long with it before you start having some injuries. And so, I realized, you know, maybe I need to broaden my horizon. So I kind of mentioned I went through four years of college, but they were very specific to those programs. So I actually went back and got my bachelor's in business. Um, and my boss uh, was very um, supportive. And he said, you know, we have a lot of people who know a lot about the animal business. They don't know a lot about the business. They know a lot about business. The other people, the executive team or whoever, they, they're running a business, but they don't always know about the animal side. And so it, this would complement each other in the fact that you'll be able to speak to both sides. And so um, that's what I try to do. I open the financials to all the animal care staff and say, hey, you know, this is the revenue that we made. This is our budget. This is what we got to work with. This is our attendance. Um, when it's great, you know, hey, let's go get some more things. When it's not great, hey, let's, where do we need to pull back? And so um, they all understand and they have buy-in because they all sign up for different um, 
neuronal programs. And so when, you know, I'm like, Hey, can you do this one more thing? And they're like, okay, because they, they have buy-in, they (laughs) understand like, you know, we want to take care of the animals the best way that we can. And so we're all fiscally responsible. Um, and then when the executive team's like, why can't you do this one more thing? And I can say, well, you know, um, X, Y, or Z this, this, you know, I, I can't ask an animal to do another program or um, my staff, especially with COVID, you know, it's like, okay, we're on split teams for a while. And so a lot of zoos went to split teams in case one team went down and you would have other, another team that could spread out and take care of them. So zoos were really good about pivoting when it came to the pandemic and, um, you know, but get, getting back to the business side of it, it you know, I, I really think that everyone had buy-in when we said, I would tell them this is how much revenue we were losing during the pandemic. And they're like, okay, I get it. You know, I'll take, I'll take an extra day off here or there. And so we all pitched in and and we survived, you know, COVID and um, we've been having some of our best and people just want to get out too. So it's so nice to be welcoming everybody back. I know we're a little bit post pandemic, but we're still in pandemic shock from being shut down, you know, mm-hmm. working here for almost 30 years and having like, not a single person, but animal care and horticulture here on grounds was really strange. Oh yeah. That must've been trippy. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It was yeah. so quiet. We saw some animals that were like, you know, you'd walk by, I'd walk by the rock hyrax and they'd be like, ah, and then <laughs> other animals would like follow you or the reptiles were like at the front of the glass, like checking it. Where is everybody? Um, so w- there were some zoos that did some research on that too, just to see the difference with no visitors and, and having visitors. Some animals that had never bred, bred, um, other animals seemed to really miss it. The rhino would like follow me around like, Hey, what are you doing over there? So, uh, it was really interesting dynamic to have it be so empty for a while, but it was a, a little creepy. I think sometimes it's like, where is everybody? But, uh, we're glad to have everybody back for sure. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I love, it sounds like your job, I mean, you have a bunch of things that you do, but it sounds like a big part of your job is just transparency between the, the I don't want to say the two sides, but it often is. It's, it's you know, management and animal care are two different sides of the same coin in a way. Um, and it sounds like your job is kind of being transparent. And Absolutely. I really love that because transparency yeah. is so important in this world, um, both in, in the world in general, but especially in, in animal yeah. care stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, no, I think it's important as a manager to be transparent with your staff and then, um, you know, building trust with both sides so that when you, you know, have a genuine concern, you know, that you're able to work through it. I, I love, this sounds weird, conflict resolution. Like if I have, there's a problem, like I teach my staff, my managers and supervisor underneath me how to deal with conflict resolution. Um, I love the book, Crucial Conversations, because, you know, Sometimes people dance around the root cause. It's like, let's just, let's just talk about what's really going on. Right. 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 And so um, I feel really supported by the management, both business and animal care at this facility. I wouldn't be here this long if if I didn't. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, except that you're in San Diego and let's be honest, it's mostly the weather. No, (laughs) that doesn't hurt at all. But so, okay. So you've been here, you know, forever, but then you're also on the board of Red Panda Network. So how did you get there? So, um, with uh, the zoo supporting me so much, they support me to go to different conferences. And so there's a conference, the uh, Wildlife um, Conservation Network, that's up in San Francisco, usually every year. And um, one of our gener- generous donors, who's now on our board of trustees, um, said, I'm going to sponsor a wildlife care specialist. Well, that's what we call ourselves now, as wildlife care specialists, to go to this conference. And so I went with my boss and um, Joan Embry. I don't know if you remember her, but she was our spokesperson forever on yes, Johnny Carson. Yeah. yeah. So Joan was up there and um, 
I came out of one of the meetings and they had all these booths set up and there was a giant sign that said, save the red panda. And I had red pandas on my string in the children's zoo. And I was like, I want to help you save red pandas. Like, how do I do that? And it was Brian Williams, who's the founder of Red Panda Network. Um, and he was like, yeah. And so we talked a little bit. And I was like, I take care of red pandas. And he was like, you do? And he was like, I have some you know, donors who've supported us in LA. Can they come down and see you? And, and I was also on the American Association of Zookeepers board at the time. And I said, yeah, you want to come down and talk to the AZAC group and we can um, maybe do a fundraiser for you or something. And so that was kind of started our relationship. And they were under the umbrella of the Rainforest Trust at the time. They hadn't even, we didn't even have a 501c3 like, you know, registration or anything. So about a year later, he said, I want to, I want to create my own board. Would you be interested in being on it? And I was like, sure. And that was like 17 years ago. <laughs> And so I helped him. I was one of the founding board members. Okay. I was the chair wow. of the board for seven years. Um, and uh, now I'm kind of the, I'm on the board of directors, but I'm the education chair, which um, our team in Nepal does so much. I just, sometimes I'll review some documents and then we're opening up the, um, it, there's the Hallbury Center, which is the Red Panda there. And it's uh, like a center for conservation learning um, right on the foothills of going into um, some of the Himalayan mountains where you can see Red Panda. So I've talked to them about some of the graphics we're going to have in there as far as being on the education chair. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a great organization. I just I can't I just can't find it to get off the board. Um, luckily they're still willing to have me and uh, we've got a really awesome board right now. Um, Angela Gladstone is our chair and she's taken it to a whole nother level. Um, you know, when I started, we were like borrowing money for Brian to keep the team funded. And now um, we raise over a million dollars for conservation work in Nepal. So we've really grown up and um, I have to thank the San Diego zoo because they've supported me to be on the board as well as um helped fundraise for it for many years. And so we've donated lots of money to Red Panda Network. We bought camera equipment and all kinds of stuff. So um, it's, it's, it's a great organization. I really am a hundred percent behind our mission and vision for Red Panda Network. And I appreciate your support of it too, and getting the message out about our conservation work. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, a, <clears throat> it is a great organization, obviously. And um, they're saving the right animals. So it helps, but uh, you know, the original Panda, yeah. as your hat says. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I guess, you know, something I feel like I need to ask is I feel like the term board of directors to a lot of people sounds like a shadowy room of old men making <laughs> decisions with no accountability. And clearly that's not what we're talking about here, but can you describe what a board of directors actually does and like what y'all do for RPN? Sure. Yes. And in this, you know, time of inclusion and diversity, um, it's it's not the old Boodle Boys Club anymore, right? So I was the chair, Angela's the chair. Um, we have a diverse board. And what we kind of look for is like skill sets to be on the board. So we have people who are lawyers who can read our bylaws, make sure we have the legalese all in order. Um, they help with our contracts, but they also, usually everyone has one common thread that they support the mission, the vision of the organization. So they support conservation. I have it. We have investors that are um, have been to Nepal and just you know want to help save the Himalayas, and so they give us financial you know advice. Um, we have a lot of zoo folks from all over the world. So people that used to work at the London Zoo, um, Rotterdam was where Angela was at. Uh, we've had other board members from different zoos. Sarah Glass was on the board for a while from Knoxville Zoo, and so. Um, we 
whenever we're looking for a new board member, we look for the skill set that they might have. So it might be somebody who was really good at grant writing or um, somebody who uh, is good at marketing. And so our board is a pretty diverse group of people. Um, my role is as I um, promote the conservation work through the AZA network. So I use, I'm on the steering committee for Red Pandas for AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums for a lot of acronyms in this business. So many acronyms. As so, a matter of fact, it's the number one thing Sarah Glass complains about yeah. all the time. Yeah, just too many acronyms. I know. I'm like, <laughs> what does that stand for? Tell me what that is. I should probably know. But So um, I'll go to the different conferences and they'll – Sarah always gives me a chance to talk about Red Panda Network. So she'll host like a whole workshop on Red Panda husbandry and then she'll talk about how you can support conservation work if your zoo wants to. So we've gotten – Quarters for conservation from some zoos, um, others we apply for their grants. And so being on the board for so long, I've had built trust with a lot of zoos as a representative for Red Peta Network. And so I'll bring the most updated PowerPoint and I'll say, this is what we're doing. And I'll thank a couple people who I know have already support, supported us. And then um, I've also done workshops on Red Panda husbandry. So I, I kind of know both sides of it, but um, I that's my role. I understand um, red pan. Like sometimes we'll get all these questions. You might even get some too. I don't know, but they'll, they'll say, Oh, my red pan is doing this. And so it'll come through Terrence, you know, mm-hmm. and he'll go, Hey, Nikki, what's this red panda question? If he can't get Angelo with our time zones, you know, might be off. <laughs> so, you know, it might be, Oh, we're having a mucus stool or something. And so uh, I, I know a lot about red panda husbandry. I know a lot about red panda conservation and I, and I get a chance to go to a lot of conferences. So I, I tend to promote red panda, uh, network at the conferences for anyone who'll listen. <laughs> nice. I love that. Very cool. And um, I'm curious. So with Red Panda Network, have you done an eco trip? No, I haven't. <gasps> I have never been to Nepal. I'm so embarrassed to say. No, I can I, talk I about it, it as though. if I've been there. Right, right. I feel yeah. like I've been there. <laughs> yep. I was supposed to go. We were supposed to have a conference basically over there with, with a bunch of different uh, stakeholders in Red Pandas and conservation in Nepal. And so we were all set and then the pandemic hit. And so now right. we've had to postpone it a couple of years. So um, my goal is to, to get over there um, and, you know, see red pandas in the wild. I had some concerns about my knee because of the, um, I had a lot of arthritis from after, you know, tearing my ACL and sure. having surgery. And so there was a period of time where I was having a hard time walking around and I was a little worried about doing an eco trip. Um, but now I'm feeling a lot better. I've been, you know, kind of rehabbing my knee. And so I'm like super excited to go to Nepal. And um, I kind of mentioned I have three kids. They're they're all older now. I have 19, 22, and 25-year-olds. So now I wouldn't be as worried about, you know, leaving kids behind and having to deal with childcare and stuff. And so I feel like I'm in a good spot to, to get over to Nepal and see red pandas in the wild soon. Nice. That is, that is a huge goal of mine as is just getting we'll one have of to those. Go together, yes, let's right? do it. I also really want one of those jackets. I've talked to Terrence about this a Me lot. Me too. Right? I don't even have one. I know. And he said that they're handmade in Nepal. So yeah. like it, he said, if I go, I yes. might be able okay. to get one. That's another so, incentive right yeah. there to go. Yeah. I'm so. not sure if I'm more excited about the jacket or seeing pandas in the wild, probably seeing pandas in the wild, but it's a really good jacket. It is. I'm like, how do I get one of those? I have like every other red panda shirt, but I'm like, I want one of those jackets. I know. I have bugged him so many times about it. It yeah. is a running joke with us. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, before you go, I have like a drawer of red panda stuff back here in my oh office. My I'll have to get some tchotchkes out for you. From, That's so yeah. fun. Oh, I love it. Yeah, this is great. Um, but yeah, so, okay, well, we're talking about red pandas. And um, obviously, you know, you're with RPN, but also there are three red pandas here now. That's right. Um, and and I'm friends with two of them. But so so tell me about the red pandas that are here. So, yeah, um, super excited. I mean, we were sad to see giant pandas go back to China, but that's kind of the agreement. Mm-hmm. And so we got to take over, which I have always fought for, but <laughs> we got to take over the giant panda space for our red pandas. So, yes, we, we were able to expand our um, red pandas here. So we have three males right now. They're all the Styani, um species, so the Chinese red panda. And um, just every red panda is just beautiful and amazing. I mean, Lucas is probably spectacular. I mean, they're all cool. I love them, but Lucas is the youngster. And so he's the new boy from Cincinnati, um, that we were over there just last two weeks ago, you know, getting to see him get some training. And, um, we've done some great, like, um, international red Panda day, like live broadcasts from, um, the habitat. So, I mean, I just have a special place in my heart for red pandas and, um, they're one of the hardest animals to train. So part of my job is running the zoo-wide training program. But we were just talking to the wildlife care specialist, Karen, who takes care of the red pandas. And we have voluntary injection training for our red pandas. Um, of course, they voluntarily crate and go on to scales. And, um, you know, we can hand feed them. We are, um, you know, a little more conservative with as far as like, we don't bring a bunch of tours in there. But we have um, behind the scenes spot uh, where sometimes we have done tours in the past with COVID. We've kind of restricted some of the um, up close and personal things with animals just as we learn, you know, who's susceptible, who's not. And so, um, but we've vaccinated a lot of our animals as well um, against COVID and all the other things. Um, So yeah, we, you know, we're so lucky here, obviously with the giant pandas leaving, we had a plethora of bamboo. Um, So (laughs) Luca is in bamboo heaven here. Uh, We can grow it up being in San Diego. We have some great um, horticulture uh, here. And so we grow all of our own fresh uh, bamboo and um, it's just great to see, you know, three habitats with red panda in it now. And so we just have that much more conservation messaging about it. Um, the staff always love uh, talking about red pandas. And so very supportive of Red Panda Network, International Red Panda Day. And um, I've just, every time a new wildlife care specialist goes down to work with them, they call me up and they're like, their new favorite animal. I'm like, that's where I was, you know, 29 years ago when I first got to take care of them. You just, you just fall in love with them and it just never leaves you. Absolutely. And we need to talk about Clark. Yes. Because Clark has been like in the red panda, you know, fanda community. Clark is a legend. Clark's tongue is a legend. It's out always Tuesday or thir- what is it? Tongues out Thursday. <laughs> yeah, tongue out, out Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. And and he's just ridiculous and he's so cute. Um is it just tell me about Clark. Like who Clark is. So, um <laughs> Clark came in what we like to say is a little overconditioned. So he was a big boy. Um, and, uh, you know, he's not a big bamboo fan, which is funny. Every red panda is, is different in that way. But, um, so he loves his biscuits, which haven't helped his teeth. Unfortunately, it's like the kid who never brushes his teeth. So, um, so Clark's had some dental challenges, but, um, which has actually caused him to be more svelte. So now we're like, okay, now you have to eat more. Wish we would, you would eat bamboo, but uh, we understand that, you know, you don't have all your teeth anymore, but, um, So in my mind, Clark is a little old man, but he's not even really that old. I think he's like eight years old right now. So, but if you put him next to Cola, they're about the same age, but 
Clark just seems like a little old man to me <laughs> because he's had some some of his, like I said, dental issues. But um, he's very sweet and he, you know, always is a pl- crowd pleaser. He's always the one who gets the posts. So we have a lot of zoo regulars who are a zoo photographer group that come through here all the time. So Clark's always getting lots of love because his habitat, he has these Chinese elm trees that he lays right up in. And so they can always get a good face shot of him. And of course, when his tongue's out, it's always the tongue's out Tuesday post. Um, so he's a fan favorite for that for sure. But, um, but yeah, Clark is, you know, he's kind of been, he's like our original panda for a while now. And then slowly we've added Cola and then Lucas now. So, um, yeah, he's unfortunately not like super genetically valuable. So he doesn't have a breeding wreck, but we're hoping that Lucas will get a female in the near future. So we'll, I would die to have red panda babies here so i'm super excited have you ever seen like baby red panda i have and um you know they're we we've have bred them here okay Um, and we were actually the first zoo in the united states to have red panda um of course you were 1927 or something crazy like that yeah so or 47 but um so yeah we've had red panda babies here but it's been a really long time but since i've been here we've we've had them but we've had a dry spell so right right you know and there's nothing cuter than a baby red panda no the floof is is real it's right yeah yeah and i wasn't the the string keeper when we had the babies so um i'm i'm super excited to you know support the population of course through breeding but um yeah it'll people just go bananas if we have baby red pants. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially if they are Lucas's because Lucas is one of the cutest red pandas right? ever. His face is ridiculous. Yeah. And uh his his sister he had uh there there's a cub out in Cincy now from the same parents, Mimi, and she's just she's just a female version of him. Like it's ridiculous to see that face again. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like we have this uh, sloth named Brad Pitt. And, you know, you, there's just people who are just very attractive, right? And this sloth is just gorgeous with long blonde hair. And so uh, we didn't name him. He came named that. But it's just funny that, you know, Lucas is like the cool kid on the block, you know, that everyone's like, oh, he's so just handsome. <laughs> Absolutely. So I have a question. Back when you had the giant pandas here, um, Clark was the only red panda here, and he was in the exhibit that Cola's in now. For anybody who's who's you know been here back when the the giants were here, and the, it, there used to be these long, crazy lines to see the giant pandas, and they were routed past red panda. And I always wondered if that was intentional because a lot of the signage around that exhibit talk about the difference between the pandas Mm -hmm. and how they're not related and how this is the original panda and all that good stuff. And do you know, was that like a design choice to be Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I I thought it was, it was, it felt very good. Well, so yeah, we used to line people and we're kind of like down the street and we had this like open space that we kind of wanted to put in um, crown cranes and different, um, or I forget which species of crane, but it was the Chinese version of crane and it just never got purchased. And so I helped design that red panda habitat and nice. then Asian cats as well. Um, and so we, you know, really wanted, so the talking are there, the main mountain viper, um, which is even um, more recently discovered than, you know, giant pandas. I know red pandas are the first panda, but so we did think like, you know, this would be a great opportunity for people to learn about other species from China. And especially because they were waiting just to see the giant panda and we wanted to kind of keep the line moving. So it wasn't just, you're just standing in the street waiting to see giant pandas. You could kind of get educated along the way. So it was a very thoughtful process and it's been very successful. Um, there's not the long line, but there's still people who love uh, red pandas. And it's funny, I still get the question, where are the giant pandas? It's like, well, we have red pandas, you know, so they're all excited to see red pandas, but um, there's, 
the giant pandas just have this, they're so rare, you Mm -hmm. know? And so there's not a lot of zoos that have them. So they just have this like following. And so people just line up to see them. I think it's like, you know, I don't know, McDonald's taking the McRib back and everyone's like, oh my God, the McRib's back. So it's like, oh, there's, it's like this limited resource, right? So uh, there's not a lot of places you can see giant panda, even less now, unfortunately, but we're hoping to get them back at some point as well. In new exhibits that yeah. don't interfere with our red panda. That's right. That's, yeah, that's yeah, my of course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're talking about uh, the, the training and the, that that is what you do. Yes. And um, so tell me what that's like for you. Because I've had a lot of people who are trainers on a like lower level, like who do the actual training hands-on constantly with the animals. But you're actually designing the programs for the zoo, correct? And how do you implement that? And how do you oversee all of that? And how much animal time do you get nowadays? All good questions. Um, so as I mentioned, I kind of started with training my own animals on my string. I kind of got known for training for medical husbandry behaviors. Actually, red pandas kind of helped me do that because we were preparing for giant pandas to come in. So I would train the red pandas for voluntary vaccines. There was also a, um, they're really susceptible to canine distemper. So it was like an every six month vaccine. So when I first started with red pandas, they were like, oh, don't, don't do any training because they need to just bond with each other and breed. And that's kind of old school mentality um, for zoo animals in, in human care. And so I also was training um, everything from vaginal swabs so that we could see cycles so that when the giant pandas came in, we could test that. I was training for measurements. So they like to know like nose to rump and girth and all kinds of different um, behaviors. So I had a lot of success with that. And because I had a vet tech background, the veterinarians were very comfortable with me doing the injections. And so um, I just kept doing that with different species because when you have a relationship with an animal to see it, you know, have to go up for an exam that maybe it's a little stressed. You're like, okay, how do I make this easier on the animal? And so we just started working and we've, we've done this around the zoo. It's not, you know, that I changed the zoo's program. They were doing a lot of great training, but we did need a concerted effort. So we did have a curator of applied behavior before I came in. Um, he focused a lot on the ambassador teams, which are part of my um, responsibility now too. But when I first got, when he moved into creating the San Diego Zoo Global Academy classes, I moved into his role. And so I had some street cred from being a, and, you know, a wildlife care specialist, a zookeeper. Um, I had trained a lot of animals. And my boss had said, I need you to help train the African wild dogs. So I came out on grounds. My job now is more about training people than animals, but I still get a lot of animal time. Um, I make time for that. That's like my favorite thing. So I often, like today I went over and helped train squirrel monkeys. Um, nice. So part of my role is teaching the science. And so I run uh, classes almost monthly. Um, I do all the new wildlife care specialists. I do like a training 101 for them uh, twice a year. So if we hire somebody within six months, hopefully you can kind of learn the program, how to fill out training requests for them. So I approve all the training requests. We have 4,000 animals here. Of course, I can't go to every training session, (laughs) but I want to make sure people understand how to apply the science of operant conditioning and all the applications. And then um, I bring in a lot of guest speakers. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Disney's Animal Kingdom and and learn from some of the best. And they gave me like their PowerPoints and things for their training 101. And so I kind of made some of those my own. I'm also on the board of directors for the um, Animal Behavior Management Alliance. So ABMA, another acronym. (laughs) And so I go to conferences all the time. I'm also on AZA's Behavior Scientific Advisory Group and their Animal Ambassador Scientific Advisory Group <laughs> um, and the Rodent Insectivore Lagomorph <laughs> Taxon Advisory Group. Um, so I, 
I always like to volunteer a lot, but I think that keeps me um, up to speed with what's happening in the industry. So I come back, I share that information. I encourage my staff and and the other um, employees here that work with wildlife to go to conferences, to get that latest, you know, innovative way to train something. Um, and I teach stuff, whether it's a reptile, you know, birds, carnivores, hoof stocks. So I try to rotate my teachings with different taxa. And then, um, you know, I just put out a survey at the end of last year, like, what do, what do you need more from the behavior husbandry program? Because I've been in this role, it's been now my, my 12th year. And so I kind of want to keep pushing myself to do more, do better. And so I got some, um, I did a survey monkey and I got some good goal setting for this year. And so I've kind of hit the ground running for this year and we're training drafts for hoof care. Um, the primate department where we've worked really closely with veterinary staff on um, hand injections and whenever possible, we want the vets or the techs to do it, but we also know that there's a relationship that it takes. So we've also come to an agreement that there's some animals that, you know, again, 4,000 animals, the vets don't have the time to come and build a relationship with everything too. Right. So a, a lot of what I do is um, kind of, triage what we need to be doing um covid injections became a big priority and we were like kind of backing off of some of the training because we were trying not to gather together we were trying to distance ourselves from susceptible species obviously we have protocols through the wazoo on covid and we were in 95s running susceptible species but our training just paid off and so we vaccinated over 300 animals here and um 93% of them were all voluntary. Nice. So yeah, wow. it was pretty amazing. Very cool. So, um, so yeah, there's, it's just, it's very complex responsibility, but, um, I have a lot of amazing staff here. I have a lot of support and I call on those people too. Like maybe there's, um, obviously like our elephant team is super advanced, um, with their training. And, and so they'll do presentations and we'll do field trips and watch training there. Um, sometimes they'll ask me to come in and, and say, Hey, we're having this big breakdown in behavior. And so we'll go through, um, you know, a functional assessment of the behavior and see what's happening. Why is the animal not want to move through the chute? And so then, you know, we'll come up with what's really reinforcing and how do we, you know, retrain this behavior, um, to emergency recall. So we want to make sure that animals, if we need to recall them quickly, no matter what's happening in the habitat, that we can get them in. So we have some, some really strong emergency recalls, which are some of my prouder, um, accomplishments here in this program. Nice. Very cool. Which is also funny because that was my next question. So good job answering that. Um, <laughs> I can't read your mind. <laughs> very cool. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned ambassador animals and the ambassador show here, the is is insane. It's the coolest thing ever. Well, oh, you mean uh, animals in action? Yes, animals yes. In action. I was like, I have four ambassador oh, okay. areas, but yes, me. that's just one of them. Well, yes. base camp's considered one of my ambassador fair, teams. Fair, yeah. fair, yeah. We'll get there soon enough. I can't wait. But um, <laughs> but yeah, animals in action is incredible. Um, and and y'all have some ambassador and exhibit binturongs. That's right. And so uh, we're we're kind of running low on time here, but I would really love to hear anything and everything about your binturongs because I love binturongs. Yes. Well, for those of you who may or may not know what a binturong is, it's, you know, it looks, it's called a bear cat as a nickname because they look like a bear and a cat mixed together, but, um, Southeast Asian, you know, more, mostly arboreal animals, beautiful, big, thick black. You think if you lived in the tropical jungle, you wouldn't <laughs> want that thick black coat on, but they seem to do well and they probably stay in the shade of the canopy of the tree. But, um, Binturongs are just also a, a favorite of mine. I've been able to work with them as ambassadors. They were also on my string when I had the red pandas. Nice. So I fell in love with binturongs and red pandas at the same time. Um, and, you know, we the 
Animals in Action program is one of my favorite programs we do here at the zoo. So the hour long program where we have, um, you know, the bintrong, like running them branches over people's heads, is like a wow moment for people. And, and, you know, again, bintrongs are such a unique species, you know, it's, People say a binter what? What? You know, they don't know what a binterong means. So Bearcat kind of just became their nickname. But um, you know, they're they're very similar. I think the markings kind of make the animal, right? Sometimes it's like if if binterongs had striped face and striped tail, everyone would be like, Oh wow, what is that? I even have a binterong on my wall next to my red panda picture. So I like it here. Yes. Um <laughs> so they're just such a cool species, very smart, uh, charismatic, uh, have individual personalities, just like we kind of mentioned between Clark, uh, Cola, and Lucas. So um, I've I know, I've worked with some great binturongs. I've worked with some challenging <laughs> binturongs, um, but I've had everything from diabetic animals that I've had to train for injection. Um, some had, I had a binturong that was allergic to palm pollen. Oh, that's no. like a tropical oh, binturong no. that's supposed to live in the palm trees. So I had to do allergy injections for him. Um, realized we had to do allergy testing like you do on a dog and figure out what he was allergic to. Wow. Um, it's kind of crazy, but I've been able to work with some amazing species. And now we have a Palauan binturong, which is a really small version yes. of a binturong. So it's like, you know, like everyone likes miniatures of everything, right? So it's so cool to get to work with different species. And uh, he's supposed to get a girlfriend. So we're supposed to have some breeding wrecks coming. So baby binturongs will be just as amazing as baby red pandas. Oh, yes. So. And and for those of you who are regular listeners, um, the, the Palauan binturong here is the, the littermate and brother of Lucille at Cincinnati, who Colleen takes care of and who I talk about on here roughly every 38 seconds. <laughs> and um, I was at the Nashville Zoo when they were all kits and have kit pictures of all of them and got to share with, with some of the keeper staff here. And it was a lot of fun. So yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I just love the small worldness of just all this stuff. I know. You know? Yeah. It, it is very small world for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So is it the, um, the Plowin or the uh, Bornean that does the uh, animals in action? Both. Oh, um, okay. I don't remember who you saw because I didn't go to the show when you were there. So um, Datu is the Plowin right. and then um, Key is the um, Bornean. So did you see Key? I think you saw maybe Key. I don't know. Yeah. So actually there wasn't a, it wasn't oh. a Bintrong day the day that oh, I saw. Oh, that's right. But I took we you in went, behind the scenes. But we that's went a few right. years ago and, and it was Bornean. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Key's been here a lot longer. Okay. Yeah, uh, Datu's only two. Yeah, um, so obviously. <laughs> we worked really hard during the pandemic to get Datu trained. And so our goal is to present animals um, doing natural behavior and off leash whenever we can. Datu made it a little nerve wracking as a youngster who, if he climbs the wall, the rhino is on the other side. So uh, we were like, okay, let's, let's really make sure that we're feeling really good about his recall and getting this down. So, so he's the newer one of the two. Um, and he's, you know, full of himself. So uh, he's very spunky, but he, they both do it, uh, which is kind of nice. Okay, nice. Um, but yeah, it's not, we have a nice rotation, so we don't have a Bintrong in every program. So right. That's right. why I got to take you behind the scenes. Yeah, so. that was very exciting. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. You're that, welcome. By the way. Of course. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you are here with us on this podcast. Here comes the doctor. You know her, you love her, I've had her on before. Here comes the editor. I needed help on this one, so I asked her for some more. Here comes the doctor. A really smart person, obsessed with behavior. Here comes the editor. So put your hands together for... Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Hi. Hi. Is that... 
am I doing this right? Okay. Um, <laughs> so Don't I cut any of that. Yeah. No. Perfect. Um, I have training questions. So yes. I am a veterinarian, but I'm specifically really interested in behavior and training stuff. Um, and it's one of the reasons I want to get into zoo medicine is because of how much opportunity you have to work right. with your patients and get them used to things. So I was curious. You talked about relationship building a couple of times, and I'm curious how you balance. It might be different for different species or different individuals, but that relationship component of it with making sure that the animals will do behaviors they need to do for anyone who's working with them. Yeah. So, you know, I learned early on in my career that um, it's a study of one. So one gorilla isn't the same as the other gorilla. So one gorilla might be comfortable doing behaviors for anybody and the other gorilla is not. I found one of our veterinarians was like, he had worked with gorillas in Australia and that all the gorillas, he could come in and ask for behaviors and they would do it. And he was pushing me, you got to train them better. You got to train them better. And I was like, okay, let me, let me go over there and test this. So I went down and watched all the cues and criteria because consistency is important. You know, figured out what reinforcers they use, how to safely reinforce the gorillas. And I could ask for behaviors from those gorillas until it became something like, turn your back to me. And so we have a cue for back, which is two fingers in a spinning circle. And the girls wouldn't turn their back to me because I didn't have that level of trust that the, the wildlife care specialist did. So you might be able to ask a certain number of behaviors, but if you want to do something like, you know, inject them, have them be vulnerable, um, you know, look in their mouth, it takes more time. And some animals are more gregarious and be like, I have two grizzly bears. One is super confident. They're brothers. One is super confident. He's the, the the rock star when it comes to training. His brother had been rescued and had a broken jaw. So he had a lot of medical procedures when he was younger, which is probably why he's very shy and, and very suspicious. And so he takes twice to three times longer to train a behavior. Montana, he a veterinarian could come up and give him an injection. Scout, I usually have to do it or someone and I and I might have to spend six months getting him comfortable with me giving the injection. So it's I can't give you a quick answer on that, but um, the power of trust and building that relationship is really the key to being successful. Um, you might be able to do some certain things, but if you don't have that level of trust, um, some animals just aren't going to allow you to do those things. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of related to that for injection training specifically, where you're kind of working up to that point of doing a real injection when they do get that negative experience with it. Yeah. Um, how do you work with that? Do you do real injections repeatedly or do you just kind of work up, do one and then leave it for a while or does it depend on the animal? Uh, it depends on the animal, but we don't like to poke them too much. We don't want to cause yeah. an abscess or have too many pokes. So uh, we work with a lot of approximations with um like a blunt needle or, you know, you know, we might start off with uh, our finger or a key and then we move to where a syringe and, you know, you have, if you want to be successful, you don't want to show up the day of the exam and be like, I've never actually poked them. So I don't know if I can get yeah. five CCs <laughs> in them, especially like the grizzly bears, you know? So I usually ask for the volume that I'm going to need. And I have also found that, um, you know, some anesthetic drugs sting. And so how do yeah. you simulate that? So I put like the saline. So we usually inject with sterile saline or sterile water and um, I'll put it in the refrigerator. So there's a sensation there. Yeah. And so that's one more approximation. Um, and once I get, once I get five CCs in, you know, um, successfully, and that's the amount that I'm going to need to do an anesthetic, anesthesia procedure with, then I 
uh, won't keep poking and trying to get five cc's in regularly. I will probably go back a step to the blunt needle and just make sure I have it. But um, you definitely want to get through all the steps if you can. Yeah. I've seen with marine mammals, sometimes they'll just snap with a little rubber band and so that it has a little bit of a sting to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried that with the grizzly bears. Their fur is too thick. It doesn't work. Uh, they're like, I don't feel anything. Like, so um, I was trying, you know, I learned from a lot of different things and then you try stuff here and you figure out what you can do. But um, one of the things I've learned too from uh, the same veterinarian who wanted me to train the gorilla's extra good was, so the smaller gauge needle, you think, oh, it's going to hurt less. Somebody's a smaller gauge needle. But if you think of like, putting a, a, a nozzle on a fire hose and how the water pressure comes out. Yeah. It's actually probably more painful to use a smaller gauge because the liquid has to come out at a higher pressure. And so even if you did use a bigger gauge needle, once it's through the skin, it's probably not going to be con- the con- continued sensation. So using a bigger gauge might actually make the, the injection less painful. It yeah, kind of sounds counterintuitive, yeah. but when he explained it like that, it made a lot more sense to me. And so, and it can be, injected faster too. So then, you know, if the animal does react, uh, we, and we work really hard that, uh, if they pull away and you haven't got the full injection in that, you know, we work towards repositioning. We kind of have a rule no more than like two to three pokes with the same needle. Cause mm-hmm. it, it does kind of blunt and that can be more painful, but, um, you know, whenever possible we do hand inject. And so, um, we try to work through every step, but then don't keep piercing the skin too, too often. Yeah. That makes sense. And we, we try to train so we can rotate too. So like the bintrong I mentioned that needed allergy injections, I had like the quadrants, you know. And so one day I would do right, you know, next week I would do left, you know, so that we could mix yeah. it up. Uh, it's sometimes hard depending on how you position the animal from protected contact, like with the grizzly bears. So um, and then I also have a behavior where I can touch it and make sure that, the, you know, I don't have a bunch of liquid that's come out or no blood, you know, if it actually hit a, you know, capillary. And then um, for some blood draws, you know, we train for pre- preventing hematomas. So you you work through that whole process where you count off, okay, I'm going to hold for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so, again, more approximations to get that, make that successful. Yeah. That was so cool. Yeah. Um, one more training question, which is, uh, I know, like, most often we're using food as a reinforcer because it works the best for most animals, mm-hmm. but there are some animals who aren't food motivated. So I was just wondering if you've had any experience with training with other things as reinforcers. Yes. As I'm looking at my back scratcher up there on the thing, <laughs> I've never known a taper, a pig or a rhino who couldn't, didn't love his back scratch. So, um, you know, we do have secondary reinforcers um, as well. We work on duration for some mm-hmm. behaviors there are times when you bait the animal or you do a continuous feed where they're just licking something. Um, I like to work on the science where they're, they're holding for duration because you really know that you a have a little bit longer to work it out because, um, once the food's gone, you know, like we used to just squeeze, uh, nectar like Kern's nectar into the gorilla's mouth while we're doing cardiac ultrasound yeah. and like oh I have to refill my bottle and stop doing the ultrasound so we work towards okay hold duration then get reinforced so um, working on a more of a one-to-one um, continuous schedule ratio of reinforcement but um, it's uh, dependent on the, the time like the sense of urgency you know if you have an injury and you don't have time to get to that point so that's why I was in my teaching I try to say okay what what are all the things that we would want them to be cooperatively caring 
you know, yeah. participating in their care for. And then we, we try to train it before it's an emergency, you know. We know they're going to need vaccination, so we work on injection training regularly. But sometimes with a wound or you know, injury or, oh, they're pregnant, we want to do an ultrasound, you know. We don't have a ton of time. So I'm, I'm realistic in my expectations too, but uh, whenever I can, I try to raise the bar a little bit in the training program and be like, okay, so maybe we can get that under, under stimulus control, which means they're actually yeah. waiting for the cue. They re- receive the cue, they wait for the bridge and then re- receive their reinforcer. So, um, but you know, there's times where it's like, okay, we just really need to get this done. So just keep shoveling the food in there or let them lick the avocado off of, you know, the, the, the we have like these little targets and um, we just need to get a quick view or quick x-ray or something like that. So um, we we have we run the gamut on how we get behaviors. But um, it, ideally, I, I always love it when we follow the science of behavior, you know, operant conditioning. Yeah. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh, no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. So uh, hit me. Okay. Well, it's funny. I when we say poop, all I can think of is like red panda poop. Um, because we have all I ever think of is red panda poop. <laughs> <laughs> so you've probably heard the phenomenon of mucus stool. I kind oh, of yeah. mentioned it uh, earlier, and so um, also known as the blahs, yes. which I think is adorable, right? And so. You know, one thing I learned early on from like Sarah Glass and some of our veterinarians is it's normal. Um, but I feel like we always have to talk through it because they have the blahs. Oh, something wrong with them. They're not eating. It's like, oh, they're probably going to have a mucus stool. And so, and I have done all of these like workshops and everyone's different. I mean, I had 25 red panda keepers in a room and every single one of them had a different experience with it. And so I keep asking the team in Nepal, like, do you see mucus stool in the latrines? And so they'll send me pictures of latrines in Nepal. So, I mean, like, there's so much red panda poop in these latrines. <laughs> and it's kind of cool because we can do, like, genome studies and see who's coming. And we're doing all kinds of cool stuff with these latrines. But they don't see mucus stool there. It's probably because they're eating a lot more bamboo. Um, we feed a lot of bamboo here in San yeah. Diego. Uh, but we'll still have mucus stools off and on. So I think it's one of the, the phenomenons that happen with red pandas. So when you... Talk about poop stories. Poop story. It's this this phenomenon with red pandas and giant pandas too, that they slough off their stomach lining into these blobby, disgustingly smelling, you know, piles that look like, gel, you know, gelatinous, you know, mucus. And um, you go, and then they start feeling better. And it's just the weirdest thing. But the theory, obviously, is that there's pokes and sticky, you know, sticks in the bamboo, and and so they they have this extra mucusy lining, and so every once in a while they just kind of have to slough that off. So, you know, I guess it's like you know, women haven't had their period, I guess, but <laughs> yeah. it's like the the panda mucus stool has been like this, I don't know, issue that red panda keepers deal with all the time and nobody can like figure out exactly like how to stop it from happening um, and why it happens all the time for some and why it doesn't happen at all for others. And that doesn't happen in the wild, which obviously is because they probably just tons and tons of bamboo there. But It is super gross though. And it smells so bad. I have, and I I've think gotten it, to spend some time with, with the blahs. Yeah. yeah. I think it might just dry up too because it's very gelatinous. And right, so maybe yeah. in, in Nepal, they just don't see it because it dries up. But you think if they're eating more bamboo that they would have 
more mucus stools yeah. off and on, but maybe they don't like to do it in the latrine. They just do it somewhere else. I don't know. That there's actually, I mean, that could actually make a lot of sense because like, you know, they are communal with the latrines and, and yeah, the animals try to hide when they're having their issues mm-hmm. in the wild in general. Right. So, yeah, and makes sense. it's such a dense forest too. That yeah. It would be super hard to find there, mm-hmm. you know, like on a, you know, 45 degree angle on a hill that you're sliding down because it's raining half the year there. So yeah. I think it's just getting missed out there, but yeah, it's just very interesting. Like I talk to people who research them in the wild and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, man, it's such a problem for us. <laughs> it's our panda poop problem. So but. weird. But hey, thank you so much for doing this. Yes, it's fun. And, uh, yeah. And I will, I will see you over in Nepal soon. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> Okay, so that was obviously amazing, and Nikki is incredible. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I want to share with you all right now. Um, first of all, I just I just want to say thank you, Nikki, for um, agreeing to do this and for being such an awesome friend now. And, uh, y'all, Nikki really hooked it up. She made sure that I got to do animals in action at the zoo and got to see some training behaviors on cheetahs that, that Zoe also got to observe, which was like super amazing, like how they train for blood draws from tails and stuff like that. It was really cool. We also got to watch a giraffe hoof trimming training session, like she mentioned in the episode. And it was really cool to see that. And, you know, got to feed them, feed the giraffes a couple of couple of little pellets afterwards. I'm going to tell you what, no matter how many times you feed giraffes, it's always amazing. Um, yeah. And then over the course of our couple of times hanging out, as she mentioned, she not only took me behind the scenes to meet the two Binturongs in the uh, ambassador area of, of the zoo, but then when we went behind the scenes at base camp, she took me back and, and let me, let me see Phuket, the other Binturong there. So, um, <laughs> thank you so much for all of that, Nikki. That was amazing. And now y'all, without further ado, I need to tell you a little bit about the new experience at the San Diego Zoo. Wildlife Explorers Base Camp is over three acres of new exhibits, and it's so well done. In comparison, the old children's zoo was one acre, and it was great. It was really nice, but um, this is so freaking cool um as nikki mentioned there's this idea of parallel play right and so like there's a spider monkey exhibit and the spider monkeys have ropes that they can climb on and swing around and then right outside of that exhibit as you are observing those animals kids of all ages because a lot of adults are doing this can go up on the rope bridge and there's there's an adult rope bridge and there's rope climbing and there's all this crazy stuff. There's water that kids can play with that shows how the animals interact with water. It's um it's it's fascinating. And of course, it's the San Diego Zoo, so a lot of thought went into all of this. Uh Nikki was telling me about the different trees and the horticulture that's gone into this and um you know, between you and me, I'm not a big plant guy. I focus on the animal stuff, but it was fascinating what she was telling me and the thought that has gone into this incredible exhibit. So base camp is built around the idea of there being four unique habitats there. There is desert dunes where you can climb rocks, explore caves and play in a desert wash while also getting to look at fennec foxes, prairie dogs, desert tortoises and burrowing owls. You can then head to Wild Woods where there is a waterfall that you can play in 
and um, there's a stream that like fills up and, and you can run around it and stuff. And there is a rope bridge and all kinds of cool climbing stuff and squirrel monkeys and coatis that play in the same way that you can in all of those places. Then you head down to Marsh Meadows, which is a marsh where you actually get to feel like you're going into the water. You're, you're not. You're not underwater, obviously. But it really does an amazing job of giving you that feeling. You get to see crocs and turtles hanging out, and then you go into a building through the water, basically. Again, you don't get wet. It's all through art and stuff. But it's so well done. And then the fourth area is the rainforest, which is a multi-level outdoor environment filled with caiman and tortoises. The area is also home to an incredible team of ambassador animals. We are talking about caracals, binturongs, a tamandua, actually an entire family of tamanduas. A famandua? I don't know. Anyway, um, and a lot of these exhibits are awesome. They're huge. They're beautiful. Uh, a bunch of them are, I'm going to call them two-story exhibits, and that's a really weird way to say it, but since they're right outside of a two-story building, you can see that the exhibit has a lot of climbing space, especially for the the bents and for the, the tamanduas and stuff, and there's a path that goes near enough where you can kind of look out from the second floor, so to speak, into the exhibit or get much closer on the ground floor and be right near the animals. Um, it's it's so well done and it's so immersive. And then, of course, because it's the San Diego Zoo and they they don't do anything halfway, there's also an area where they can decide to bring back VIPs or do extra tours or do animal meet and greets. And they can just unlock this door and boom, you're right there. And uh, you you have access to to seeing some additional um, ambassador animals. And like I said, they have like a little mini stage that you can do ambassador meet and greets with and stuff. And it's all just it's all just so good. The area also has a huge herp house and invertebrate house, and it is so nice to see those things, which which the San Diego Zoo, they have a ton of reptiles, but it's kind of all outdoor. And to actually be able to go into a herp house is really cool, and I have to tell you all, the invertebrates are next level. I saw multiple species that I have never seen before, and, and again – been to a zoo or two in my life. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it was fascinating. And and Nikki even pointed out that they worked really hard to make sure that as you go into the invertebrate area, you start off with some more common ones, some ones that might not seem so weird or different. And then you go and you meet the bugs that you didn't know existed, or you see a bunch of tarantulas. But it's done in an educational way to help you get over the fear and to maintain interest and help you be educated. It's it's really cool. The zoo has also done an amazing job of just integrating technology into these spaces. All of the exhibit signs are digital so they can update and change information. And there are a lot of games that kids, again, of all ages, can play to learn about animals and then like turn around and see those animals. There was a really cool one where you had to search for um, different kind of invertebrates in like grasses and stuff. And it's a competition. So you're playing against someone or you can do it solo, but it's more fun playing against someone. Nikki kicked my butt, but 
To be fair, she already knew all the answers. And then after finding those on the screen, I got to turn around and find them in the exhibits right behind me, which was extra cool because these are animals that have a lot of camouflage. And so by training myself on the screen how to look for them, I actually did find it a lot easier to find them on exhibit. So uh, this slightly older than kid kid was, was still learning from this. I thought it was just amazing. And the cool tech doesn't just stop with screen stuff. Uh, the um, naked mole rat exhibit that they have is super cool. We've all seen the naked mole rat exhibits that every zoo has, right? It's it's not an uncommon thing. But they came up with a way to make it so that you literally can't see anything except for inside the dens. It is completely pitch black. They hit everything and then you just see den, another den another den. And it, it makes it such a unique and different way of understanding how these animals actually live in the ground, as opposed to living in basically what looks like a giant hamster habitat, which is what we normally see and which is great. But this is just next level. There is also a um, entire colony of leafcutter ants and it, the, the colony is just getting established right now. It's really cool to see them starting a colony. Uh, but the area is huge and it goes through multiple rooms and it's just so cool to see. And speaking of multiple rooms, the Spineless Marvel's Invertebrate House is two stories tall and y'all, there are butterflies that can float freely between the two stories. It is stunningly, stunningly beautiful. The way Nikki talked about all of the thought that went into all of the design is just one of those things that I love so much about zoos. It's like they literally stop and think of not just the animals and not just the people's experience, but also like what can they share? How can they make things unique? How can they make things grow? How can they make this make sense? As you walk through and you go through the desert and into the woods and into the marsh and into the buildings and all that other stuff, it tells a cohesive story. It tells a conservation story. And of course, all of the signage is focused on the eight conservation hubs because they are absolutely killing that game right now. It is impossible to walk away from the Wildlife Explorers Base Camp without having a deep understanding of the commitment that the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance has to conservation. And that is amazing. I could not be more proud of the incredible work that the team there has done. It's this is stunning. Y'all get your butts to San Diego, drink some Phil's coffee and get to the San Diego Zoo and check out Wildlife Explorers Base Camp and, you know, the rest of the best zoo in the country. I'm just going to say it. It is what it is. Of course, until you get there, you can find them online, sandiegozoo.org and on social media at San Diego Zoo. And of course, we also talked a lot about Red Panda Network, and y'all know I love RPN and love being a volunteer for them. So don't forget to check out redpandanetwork.org and at Red Panda Network on social media. I actually have a new volunteer writing piece dropping for them soon, and also I'm going to be doing a fundraiser for them soon. Details to follow on social media and later episodes of the podcast. All right, friends, this has been quite a journey. Thanks for taking it with me. I super appreciate y'all. And remember, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. Steiderk.
The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.